everyone. Welcome to the season finale of season one of Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. My name is Natalie Benet. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome back a dear friend and former colleague, Dr. Christina McLaughlin. Some of you who went way back and listened to the first episode before I even had a theme song will know that I already talked to Dr. McLaughlin to Tina at the very beginning. She was my uh, friend and guinea pig for the first show. She mostly grew up in Oregon, where she completed her undergraduate medical school pathology residency and a heme path fellowship, and then did her surge path fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. And she's been in private practice in Colorado since 2010. Among her many achievements, she's contributed to the literature. She's had various leadership positions. And on a personal note, I will say she's a near constant source of comfort, wisdom, hilarity. I'm happy to welcome her back to the show. And it seems fitting that we'll wrap up this first season by once again talking to my friend. So Tina, how are you doing? I'm okay. How about you? <laughs> okay. Adjusted for 2020. You know, <laughs> and we're almost done with 2020. We're recording this on the 29th. So we're about to tell this year to go away. So to open up the discussion, and this isn't something you and I talked about in the first show, but I've done a lot of shows since we talked with mostly with GYM pathologists about how they came to chose that field. So I thought it would be fun for you to talk about how you chose medicine. You know, did you grow up in a scientific family? And then once you were in medicine, how did you land on pathology as a career? Oh, so, well, I don't know that I'd say that I grew up in a scientific family. My dad was a, a comptroller, so he mainly dealt with money. And my mom's an artist, a visual artist. She's a painter, abstracts and artwork. And I always liken the practice of pathology to sort of being an art critic. You're just looking at, you know, different <laughs> colors and shapes and symmetry. Um, so that's not how I think about myself, but that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in some ways, I think it certainly helped with yeah. the whole visual aspect. But when I was in medical school, I remember in my second year, you know, we're still doing the basic science sort of stuff that when I was sitting with a patient, I really wanted to be able to visualize what was wrong with them. So if somebody had congestive heart failure, I wanted to know what their heart should look like. And at my medical school, they had a post-sophomore student fellowship in pathology. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know what, I'll do that because then I'll have a really good idea of what someone's lung cancer would look like. It helps me to, I like to understand as much as I can about a situation. Um, and I felt like this would help give me the deeper knowledge I needed to, to really get that deep understanding. And I did it and it was awesome and I loved all of it. And then I went on to my third year thinking I was going to be an internist. I wanted to be a hospital intensivist. Oh, yeah. your life would be much different right now, friend. <laughs> Wouldn't it though? Oh. And, and then, you know, we did our clinical rotations and I woke up one day and was like, I love pathology. Why don't I just do that? What am I doing? <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was like someone flipped a switch and, and I did it and I was so happy uh, because it, it's I think that when you're choosing a medical specialty, it helps to understand something about yourself. I like to be, efficiency is really important to me, like being able to crank through things and have the time to think deeply about something. And pathology is one of those situations where you can usually do that. You're not dependent on waiting on, say, a patient or, uh -huh. you know, sometimes you wait on immunostains, but. Well, or an, an operating room. I think that would be frustrating for me if I were a surgeon. I know some places are better than others, but you're right. It's not, you wait on your slides to come out, but there's always work to do, right? The slides. Exactly. Yeah. Wait for you or 
vice versa. Yeah. You have much more control, I think, over your individual day. It also, you know, I love, I love when I get a new case, it feels like every case is some sort of puzzle or mystery and you have to find all the clues to come up with the answer. And part of the answer is, again, also looking at something very visual and being observant and, you know, doing the art appreciation part. So mm-hmm. it ended up being a perfect field for me. And I, I really enjoy it. I, I think it's funny that so few, so few people get past the whole microscope thing because it, it's kind of an awesome specialty. Yeah, I, I agree. And I've talked to multiple people on this show about why pathology isn't quite as well understood. I think when you and I were in medical school, you're just a scooch older than me, but I think it was much the same because I went to a pretty traditional medical school where pathology was its entire own course in the second year. And you just learned about pathology for a year. And granted, a lot of that was the pathology of disease, but there was microscopy involved and histology was involved. And I think because medical schools now do organ-based education, the pathology curriculum has been cut up and also cut down so much that I think students don't really understand what we do. I've had multiple clinicians come observe, you know, during their fellowship or something, and they they just say, well, I had no idea this was what you do. And there aren't that many other kinds of medicine that I can think of that someone can get all the way through medical school and have absolutely no idea how it works. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> just like- true. And, and we have relatively few practitioners too in the field of medicine, but it used to drive me nuts. Um, I was also really into sports medicine because I was a rugby player. But- we should talk about rugby. But you understand it at all. Yeah. You you know, you would just look at something and be like, blah, blah, blah. But it, then you'd ask the like attending something more explanatory about a condition and they'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> you know it drove me nuts because I like to know every uh, last little detail yeah. if I can. I understand. Yes. <laughs> I although I do I can tell you from personal experience teaching medical students, they'll ask me things and I Sometimes I have to just say, you know, I don't remember that anymore. So that probably means it's not important because I do this every single day and I don't remember that thing. Oh, 100% true. I remember (laughs) sign out when I'd be like, but what's that cell? And they'd be Uh like, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And you're like, how can you not know what that cell is? You need to know what that cell is. not know what kind of collagen is in that thing. And I'm like, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Just breathe. I still have those moments though. And I'll text, uh, you know. Uh, a friend and be like, what is this cell? Tell me what this is. <laughs> I had a friend who called those skipocytes. So fine. That's someone's Twitter handle too. Dr. Oh, yes. I love well, that. We use those in the marrow too. Perfect. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you chose pathology. How did you choose to do heme path and surge path? And did you always know you not, wanted to, cause you're, what you're saying about yourself, it sounds like you would have belonged in academics. So how did you end up in private practice? Oh, good questions. So I think part of the reason why people choose things is because the person who teaches them that thing is awesome. And my heme path teacher, Guang Fan at OHSU, was brilliant and wonderful and just the most incredible person. And I still every day try to be like her. Still Um, practicing? Is she still? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And she, you know, her approach to everything is so practical. And so without you know, additional unnecessary details. And I don't think I'm quite that concise, but, but whenever I get myself into a snit, I, I, you know, back off and say, what would Guang do with this? Like simplify it. But she was so much fun to work with and she made him so much fun and I just loved it. And it combines kind of 
a little bit more of sort of the deep science of medicine with the clinical aspects of medicine. Yeah, it's pretty analytical. Theme path is pretty analytical. It's not my favorite thing because of that. But that sounds like it's like <laughs> why you love it because <laughs> there's Absolutely. data, right, to back up your. Yeah. Well, I was a, a history major in college, and so as a history major, you get really good at taking all these disparate facts and trying to craft them into analytical. And that's kind of what heme is. You take all these little bitty clues and you work them together into a comprehensive diagnosis. And so again, that was a really good fit for me. The Search Path Fellowship in the Mayo, you know, when I was coming out of residency, it was right when they locked that fifth year off. Mm-hmm. And everybody was so confused about, can you get a job without a fifth year? You know, should mm-hmm. you do a Search Path Fellowship? Should you do a, a subspecialty fellowship? Should you do both? And people went different routes and they you know, they were all successful to varying degrees, but I just wanted to hit it out of the park from the get-go and just do both fellowships so that I could be the most employable I could possibly be. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to shore up my abilities. And uh, That's a I suppose, place to do it. I mean, they've got plenty going on up there, so I'm sure. Well, and, and you know, they, at that time they did everything by Frozen too. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll come out of this feeling really comfortable with Frozens. And they also do they do an enormous number of cases of both benign and malignant processes. And it's actually kind of hard when you're looking at search paths to find places that have a lot of benign cases. You know, a lot of them are surgical oncology fellowships. So it was definitely a challenging year, but I think it was very worthwhile. Yeah, that's good. And then you decided to go to private practice. Was it because of money? money? (laughs) Okay. I was going to say Colorado. I didn't know if you, I know you like the mountains and things, but money. Okay. No, no. I mean, you know, I funded my own medical school education because I wanted to stay in Oregon, which was a, it's a state school, state funded school, but it charges private school amounts. And so I had massive student loans and okay. and a young family and academics, I'm sure you know, is not the most lucrative. So Not the most lucrative, but maybe <laughs> more flexible, right? For young yes. parents. So. Well, that's what Guang always used to tell me too. It's very yeah. flexible. You have a lot more time with your family, but digging yeah. change out of your couch to find enough money to buy dinner was not something I really wanted to do the rest of my life. So not quite that bad in my situation, but I had a couple of years in private practice, as you know, to maybe make things a little less awful. But I, I totally respect that. It is fun to have a job where everyone likes talking about things as much as you and I do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes when I was in community practice, I would try to have a discussion with my partners or colleagues and they were like, yeah, we can just, uh, we can just sign that out. <laughs> it's okay. You can just well, Yeah, it's true. We would have, and when I was more junior in my career, I would obsess over those details. I will also say, you know, in defense of community practice that you yeah. do have lots of opportunities to do research and teaching that aren't mm-hmm. necessarily academic and it probably fits my personality better in mm. some ways than academics. So we'll slightly switch topics right now and talk about the last time we talked, which was the beginning when I was starting this podcast, which I had thought about doing for a long time. And then COVID hit and I thought, why not? It was March 27th of this year. And it's pretty much, uh, let's see, nine months later, it's like the 29th of December right now. So this year has been pretty much all in caps locks, everything. When we talked last time, there were 97,000 cases in the U.S. And as of right now, am I reading this right? Is that true? There's 18 million cases in the U.S.? That's I think so. 
holy moly. And there have been over 300,000 deaths attributed to COVID-19, which is probably from most things I've read an undercount. So for me, the news has become completely overwhelming. It seems there are two Americas with some folks embracing science, using universal masking, social distancing, and signing up now for a vaccine, which I have signed up for, and you have already received um, your first dose, at least. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I think I know this is true for you as well, because we were texting back and forth all the time. We were both glued to the news. But now I find that I actually can't track it the way I was because it's so upsetting. So how are you feeling about this right now? And what's your news diet like these days compared to nine months ago? Oh, I'm with you. I, I can't. I stopped checking the Facebook panels and I can't I can't follow it anymore. Are there still people in there doing it? I don't know. And, I haven't checked in ages. Okay, you don't even look. <laughs> okay, I respect that. I just don't believe there's anybody who can handle it anymore. They must just have different brains than I do. Yeah. I think through the summer, I was still pretty obsessive about reading every like paper and all the developments. And then at some point, I was just like, well, I can't do this anymore. I know. It's so um, It's yeah. too overwhelming. The numbers, like even when you're talking to uh, non-medical people, the numbers are just astronomical. And I just can't even wrap my brain around it. I mean- I don't know, like, the number of code blues in the hospital is insane. Yeah. And I was talking to some, you know, some of the ICU docs, and they're like, oh, those are just the ones that aren't on a DNR. And I'm just like, crap. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. That's so upsetting. Isn't it, though? Oh. It's, it's you know, when you go through all the histories for your cases, like, I know. You know, half of them are like COVID. It's just, I think and- at some point it's too overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm seeing lots of, you know, oncology patients who didn't get surgery back when because of COVID and now they're getting surgery and, you know, like a lot of people deferred or whatever. So it does seem to kind of touch every, you know, even non-COVID patients are sort of. um, Yeah. I think when they had stopped doing the electives back in April, Uh in May, we started to see people who were septic with hepatic abscesses because they had just ignored their gallbladders for so long that you know, oh. they basically perfed and turned into something oh. awful and it burst appendices. Yeah. I've never seen so many. There's definitely, I think that has kind of eased. I think people feel more comfortable coming to the yeah. hospital now, but. I think the hospitals have figured out better how to maybe Absolutely. triage the patients and kind of quarantine people so they can keep going. But it is, it does. there's no part of, of life or certainly medicine that has been unaffected. So I re-listened to our old show and I thought we could go over some of the things we talked about then. Laboratory testing was just getting started. PCR was kind of the only way to test for COVID back in March. And it seems like now there's a bunch of different testing modalities. So you can talk as much as you want about your hospital and what you all are doing or just in general about what you understand about testing. But how do you feel about testing now compared to then? did an amazing job getting it up and running. We're mainly using the Cepheid platform. And it seems... It seems to work pretty well. I I don't think people are waiting much more than a day in the hospital to get their test results. So, you know, anyone with any risk factors that comes into the hospital gets tested. And I know a lot of outpatients who are going in for procedures have to get a test before they go in to be seen. So it seems to be working much uh, more smoothly now. I do know that the number of molecular tech openings that we had at the hospital, like even a couple of weeks ago, was crazy. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. They're just overwhelmed. 
but I think they seem to be keeping up with it. What's most interesting to me is the car line for testing. Uh, When you drive through the parking lot, you can kind of get a sense of how bad the community spread is based on how many people are sitting in their cars waiting to get tested. Wow. See, they moved that away from the hospital where I work. It used to be you could see it, but now I think it's off site. So I don't, I'm not as impacted by that. How's the line looking these days? Or have you been seeing it? It's like mid level. It's not as long as say like right before Thanksgiving was pretty bad. And in, in the summer, late summer Hmm. and, you know, first April, but, but it's definitely longer than I'd like to see it. Totally. Yeah. But I, I have heard better things like you say about turnaround time, testing patients, testing pregnant patients who come into the hospital, kind of following better protocols. But that seems almost in direct contrast to the surging case numbers and deaths that we have. So I can't quite connect that in my mind. It seems like maybe not everyone who should be getting tested is getting tested, right? Or We're certainly not doing that- contact tracing or, or general exactly. testing of the public. And I think that's yeah. where we, we differ from you know, places like South Korea or Germany. Yeah. You know, I think that it's become pretty routine to test people in the hospital and that's going really well, but I don't think there's a lot of community testing. Yeah, I agree. And and one place, I mean, this is sort of like a a soapbox that I'm on is like, I know there's surveillance testing, for example, nursing homes and like assisted living or group home situations, but it seems to me like surveillance testing of schools should be happening. I know that children are not being as adversely affected, but it seems like it's a great place to spread it around, take it home and spread it to family members. And I don't think that's happening most places in the United States. It's happening in other countries, but not here. And that's... I think the closest to that would be colleges. I think they're doing a lot of that kind of testing. That's true. That's true. Um, But the, you know, you would think like middle schools and high schools, we know that those... Adult, like anyone over the age of 11 does a pretty good job spreading it. So I think there's um, just no funding for that. And even know, if there were just... funding for it, the I know that supply is still an issue exactly. with reagents yeah. and just like it's it's usually not like a whole kit. It'll be some part of some process uh, or procedure that's not available yeah. for that day. But I, yeah. But when I look at our numbers, I think maybe the reason why that's true is because we're not, like you said, we're not contact tracing and we're not doing surveillance testing. But the other, we'll get to it in a minute, but the vaccine is sort of where everyone's placing their hopes. So we'll... Yes. Well, no, I agree. I feel like our natural approach was to give up and just wait for the vaccine. I know. And it's so upsetting. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your interactions with colleagues and clinicians compared to... So it seems like a general pattern I noticed, not just with you, but with my uh, workplace and with friends was when no one understood what was happening, we all just sort of retreated almost like into our turtle shells. And now everybody's doing things a little bit differently. I have some friends who are doing group sign out across giant multi-headed scopes with maybe only one or two people. I have some friends who do only Zoom. I have some friends who feel pretty comfortable doing across the scope teaching in their own offices. And then I know in community practice that you have double-headed scopes and you share cases with your colleagues. So you know, and also in community practice, I found clinicians dropped by my office a lot more often. So what does all that look like for you now compared to nine months ago? Definitely no clinicians dropping by the lab or our offices anymore. <laughs> I haven't seen any in my offices since um, before March. You know, I think it's a lot more relaxed. Like I remember the atmosphere in March. It was so weird. Like everyone was holding their breath for, for a disaster. Uh-huh. Um but it was taking so long. It was like the slowest moving disaster ever. So yes. 
you never yeah. got to exhale. You were just holding your breath the whole time. Yes. And people seem much more relaxed now in the sense that it is a disaster and it is awful. And I, I honestly don't know how our patient-facing colleagues can deal with this, but but they seem to have a grasp of how what they need to do and how to handle it. And so in general, I feel like the stress levels kind of ratcheted down quite a bit. And then since people started getting the vaccine, I, I would say that people seem a lot happier. Like it feels like the end may be in sight. There may be a lot of awfulness before the end gets here, but at least there is the possibility of an end. Yes. It's not just asymptotic. I yeah. agree. All yes. of um, our tumor boards are all uh, virtual, although some people, like I think only five people can be in person in the room mm-hmm. and just required to be one of the in-person people. So we just log on uh, through Microsoft Teams for it. And I, I also don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I really like virtual tumor board, just for the record. Well, it's Same nice here. because it's, it's with family and flexibility, it's so much nicer to just you know, commute from home kind of, because they're all universally, they're always really early in the morning, right? They're always super early in the morning. So you know, I, noon. Most oh, of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that did have, I forgot in community practice because then they'd give you lunch, which I'm sure they can't do now. Maybe they just send lunch to your office. Well, every other hospital I've worked at, it's been at seven. So mm-hmm. I thought this was unusual here. But yeah, it's at noon. They um, had, well, that's interesting. So still in virtual tumor boards, I don't anticipate, like you said, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon either. I think it's going to, I think it's going to be really hard. I was thinking about this about how much I wanted to go see a concert. Like I love in-person music, not like rock concerts, but performances. I don't know when I'm going to feel comfortable sitting in a theater again. And our tumor boards sometimes are pretty packed and that's going to be, it'll be interesting to see how long it takes people to feel comfortable doing that. I don't know. I think for some people it'll be right away. And then for others, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. I will say the minute my family is all vaccinated I'm on a plane. Oh, good for you. I don't want to go somewhere. I know. I just want to, I want some more data on the vaccine working, you know, because, you know, anyway, but I agree. You're, you're, well, you're a lot braver than I am. That's one of the lovely things about having you as a friend. I'm not sure Um, if I would say brave. We just have different risk assessment levels. I think that's what bravery is, right? It's like, no, I just just remember I texted you at the beginning. I'm like, how can I go to work every day? And you were just like, just get up and go. You'll be okay. And I was like, oh, Tina said I'll be okay. (laughs) Get up and do it. I, I, because I just want to put the covers over my head and tell the world to leave me alone right now. (laughs) That was me at like the beginning of March last year. So tumor boards. Okay. And then Colorado as a state, it's an interesting place, right? People think of Colorado who don't live there and they think, oh, it's beautiful for skiing. All of that is true. But politically, it's very interesting because it's got this libertarian streak to it, right? So it's got this, people think like, oh, it votes, you know, Democratic in the presidential elections, which is true, but it hasn't always been true. But there's a big independence streak there in people, right? Absolutely. You've had early outbreaks because of this weird fluke where there were a bunch of people who flew into some shishi resort town that I don't remember the name of. And they had a big outbreak there at the beginning, like way at the beginning in March. And they tested the whole town and it was a great story. And then things got better. But then it seems like you all were making the news again kind of before the second wave hit the rest of the country. It got bad there again. So how's it going now? How are you doing? Well, and I guess the first case of that UK variant that's highly contagious is in Colorado today. 
Where did, uh, <laughs> in a patient uh. who ha- has no travel history, he hasn't been anywhere recently. So that, that probably suggests that'll be that, fun to contact trace that person and figure out the 4,000 other people they've been in contact <laughs> with. Since yeah. It suggests there's probably already been widespread community spread of this new variant. Yeah. I don't know if there's a perfect approach to, to something like COVID-19, but I feel like the Colorado state government has done a pretty good job, especially in partnership with all the hospital systems. Mm-hmm. You know, they all had plans in place for how to handle surges. And the vaccinations, from my perspective, have been moving very smoothly. From a personal anecdote, it was so easy for me to go in and get mine. And I got it like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And then my mother, who's in you know an elderly high-risk group, just got her vaccine yesterday, which seems insanely fast to me. That's um, really fast. They haven't even given it to all the healthcare workers where I am. So that's really fast. But I think they have most of the ones in Colorado that wanted one, I think have already gotten them. And that's why they've started moving on to, to high risk yeah. populations. But, but a lot of it is so state dependent. I think Colorado in some ways, you know, we're not as big as say Florida or California, obviously. And our healthcare is pretty centralized in this corridor on I-25. And so I think it made it a little bit easier to deploy vaccinations and, and yeah. for all the hospitals to kind of cooperate in terms of handling the surge. So, so I think it's going pretty well, but I think it also depends like what county you're in, how you feel about it. They've definitely been trying to do some extra economic um, stimulus and aid in the absence of federal government assistance. So I don't know how, how well that's worked for um, the small businesses in Colorado, yeah. but at least it's something that other states might not be giving. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the vaccination rates compare. I know Colorado has historically had low vaccination rates. I know this from when I was researching schools. Yes. But I... You know, for example, I know Rhode Island has one of the highest vaccination rates for HPV in the whole country. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and then how that plays into control of the disease going forward. Because you would think folks who want economic recovery would be getting in line for the vaccine. But it seems, and I, like I said, I've been staying away from the news, but it seems to me like there are already people out there making up nonsense about how they don't want to get this. It's fascinating to me. It's always the person that you least suspect that decides Mm -hmm. they don't want it. You know, I have heard some people not want to take the the Pfizer or Moderna ones because they have severe seafood allergies and there do seem to be some rare reactions in those patients. Yeah. But, and that I feel like is fairly reasonable, but then I mean, I've heard it all. Like, I have relatives who are like, well, they're implanting microchips from yeah, or the conspiracy theories. Like, how does that make sense? They could just track your phone. <laughs> I, yeah, I just, I know. Like, we've all, we, we literally give away our data to Facebook so that we can, you know, have book clubs or something. And, and now people, I just, I, yes. Oh, deep absolutely. Breath. Yeah. Ooh. Or that the, the mRNA is going to alter your DNA. You're going to be, a mm-hmm. genetically modified organism. <laughs> send them back to, to send them back to cell bio. Give them a textbook. Tell them to take a couple hours in a room and just figure out that that's not how it works. Well, hey, you know, if it makes my ankles feel younger, I'd be all for it. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some mRNA. Get rid of my wrinkles. 
or my gray hair. So, <laughs> so your surge path volumes, I assume like everyone else's went down at the beginning of the year, like crashed down art and then kind of went back up. Are you all still seeing pretty good numbers? It seems like they're still doing elective surgery where you are or how's that working? We, we probably saw less of a decrease than, than other parts of the state where they have more of a mix of outpatient and inpatient. Cause a good chunk of our cases are oncologic, and so they were still proceeding with those surgeries. But, you know, what we missed were all the, like, benign uteri and the GI biopsies and gallbladders and appendices. And I will say the thing that you never really think about is how much you enjoy looking at those to break up the uh-huh. really complex, like, 20-part oncologic resections I mean, it's just mm-hmm. nice to, you know, have palate cleansers. <laughs> exactly. It's like smelling coffee when you're at a candle sniffing party. Like you just got to give yourself a break. That's I a agree. perfect analogy. Yes. It clears your I palate agree. so that you can concentrate on the really challenging thing. And then we got back to relative normal. And then right before Thanksgiving, the a lot of the lectus started being postponed again. So mm-hmm. And But this time, not because they were worried about people being affected, but because there weren't enough nursing staff. Yeah. Um, finite resource there. Exactly. Very skilled, finite resource. I'm sure those people are tired. And no, and no ICU beds. So things that required, you know, potential stays in the ICU were definitely being postponed. So it's, def- it's a bit weird because this is usually our busy time of year because everyone's trying to get their electives out of the way before their deductibles reset. And we didn't have any of that, you know, fourth quarter surge and exactly. So it's been a bit strange. Yeah. There's not as much elective surgery in GYN and breast that I deal with now that I'm not in a general practice anymore, but our, our volumes went way down. They've come way back up. And like I said, I've, I've seen, you know, I don't have like numbers on this, but the number of patients who, when I look up their oncology history is you know, was diagnosed back in whatever and went on this medicine and now is having surgery. So it's it's also been interesting to see the sort of disease processes evolve. So 2020 is going to be here, 2021, as before we know it. And the vaccine is all people are talking about. Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have both been approved in the U.S. And the Pfizer vaccine, let's see, is the is the one that everyone's getting now, right? That's the one that's available. I think both are are have been deployed. Yeah, I think Pfizer was first or something. Yes, so I think Pfizer is definitely I'm, first. Yeah, and that's the one I'm gonna get. It's the one that requires re- refrigeration and all this other stuff. So I think that's the one I'm getting. And so you're a partially vaccinated person. Could you have imagined when we talked back in March? This is the thing that's crazy to me that we would have a vaccine nine months later. I would have told you absolutely not. I would have said no. Well, I'm in general a very optimistic person. So, you know, I was, and I will say they were predicting that they could have it by now. And if there's one thing you know about physicians and scientists is that they always underpromise so that they can overperform. Yeah, but I, I thought maybe a year, right? If someone had told me by next March, I would have said, okay, maybe. But by by like by the close of the calendar year, I would have said, come on now. Come but you on. know what's fascinating about this? It just goes yeah. to show you what 
we can do when enough attention and money is pumped into a problem, right? So that's true. That's can't true. we solve climate change by like next? That's year? exactly <laughs> what I extrapolated this to. I was like, next up, climate change. Let's just put some real brilliant minds on that and throw the exact same amount of money at it. And nine months later, right, they'll just fix it somehow. They'll be but, great. You know, I also think, too, I mean, a lot of these people have been working on this process, uh, maybe not in the specific Right, context. like the mRNA technology and those libraries and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost yeah. like you finally have the perfect context to deploy it. And that's what yeah. happened. And so yeah. that that part's hugely exciting. And hugely they, Give credit to the government. You know, a lot of this couldn't have happened if they hadn't expedited the evaluation process. So Right. But the technology, you're right. It's amazing and all the great minds. And then the other thing that I think is exciting is they're talking about universal vaccines now and actually putting real money towards it. And I think that would be great. Yes. So maybe we don't knock on wood. We don't have to go through this again. <laughs> yeah. Great. yeah. So to not to get in the business of predicting the future, but it seems like it will take quite a bit of time and get everyone vaccinated. I've read if we go at the current rates we're going at now that it's going to take quite a while. So I tend to think that problem also will get solved pretty quickly of getting this deployed more quickly than it is currently being deployed. How long do you think it will take to quote unquote, get back to normal? Gosh, I, I think I just saw a headline that said something like, if if we continue at the rate of vaccination that we're doing now, yeah. it's going to take like 10 years to vaccinate. That's what, that's what my husband was telling me at dinner. And I'm like, I don't want to hear that. They're going to solve that problem. That's going to be a problem they where will. they're going to be like knocking on people's front doors and be like, do you want a vaccine? Just put your arm out here. I'll give you a vaccine. A hundred percent too. And, yeah. and I think as like AstraZeneca is, I think only a one shot process. So I think right. as these different vaccines roll out that it will get a lot faster and honestly, I'm impressed at how quickly they vaccinated as many people as they have yes. already, although I know it, it falls far short of the goal that they had in mind. But still, it's it's been pretty impressive. I mean, I think, I think by fall, I hope that things are mostly back to normal. I hope kids are in person in school and that people can travel and visit their loved ones at nursing homes. So Yes, I'd like. I'm holding on to that because I think we all fall, need some fall of 2021. Yeah, isn't that crazy to think though that it's December and when you say fall, in my head, fall is like September. So that's it's it's almost a year away. <laughs> it's it is. Like, which can be really far away and really soon all at the same time. I know. Time. It's crazy. We've been doing this for nine months and we're maybe at the halfway point. Isn't that nuts? But, you know, I, mean, I think it'll be like a trickle. It'll be like oh, do, one day you can go to a restaurant and, you know, the next right. there may be a concert or something. But And then right. I would like to let people know that in terms of my vaccination experience so far, it was – it was pretty smooth. Like, you know, it's like any shot, like the flu shot we get every year. It certainly didn't hurt. They made you sit there for 15 minutes to make sure that you didn't really? have some sort of allergic reaction. And then my arm you got was it in the hospital, I assume. No, it was at admin building. Interesting. And then later that night, my arm was a little sore, kind of like your standard flu shot. And the next morning, it was more sore, kind of like tetanus level sore. Hmm. And then that night, I got hit by a sudden wave of like fatigue and a little bit of achiness, but then I slept like a baby all night long and it was the best thing ever. <laughs> Tina McLaughlin vaccine report, colon mark. Exactly. Arm kind of sore, good night's sleep. 
<laughs> totally. We're not asking for much. Course. Yeah, we're not asking for much in life except <laughs> getting a vaccine and then a good night's sleep. Hey, as but, any mother can tell you, you'll take it if you can get it. I'll take it. Sleep. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. I never slept better than when I was when I had infants because it's like I was so exhausted. I'm not a napper, but when I had infants, I could nap sitting up in a chair. Oh, I, was like, I think if I sat still yeah. for more than a minute, I would fall asleep. Oh. <laughs> and apparently the same thing can be said of the COVID vaccine. Yeah. That's the first time I've heard that. Thank you. It's breaking news on this. News <laughs> I've heard this news. second shot is more uh-huh. likely to have more reactions like a little fever oh. or something, which makes sense because you kind of prime the yeah. pump and then sure. yeah yeah well bring it on like i said and i i know this is not founded in medicine and i am kidding but it's like if they want to give more than one v- brand of vaccine to me if that proves <laughs> helpful that's fine i'll take one in each arm that's fine i'll take it that's it's fine so fascinating I... people are all like yeah. give it to me i want it i want it and or they're like no i'm not taking that i know and but maybe there will be enough of us who get it that we can herd immunity this thing into the ground that would be lovely now we were going to talk about life outside of work so I will say my family tends to be more on the cautious side, but I have asthma. I know you have asthma, but like I said, you're braver than I am. And then I also have folks in my immediate like nuclear family who we've been isolating together who are older and like in that high risk group, but so do you. So how are you doing things outside of work? Grocery shopping, gathering with your family, flying. How are you handling the things that even a year ago, no one was giving a second thought to? We, you know, I try to take a reasoned approach. Grocery mm-hmm. shopping, I'm the only one who ever grocery shops anyways, so. <laughs> <laughs> so and your family has a lot of dietary needs. Really oh my God, for you. pain in the butt. But yeah. yeah, so I do a mix of delivery and then I also go and buy groceries myself and I just wear a mask. I think that mm-hmm. once they determined that there wasn't that much of um, a concern about fomite transmission, I was a lot more comfortable grocery shopping before that it was mm-hmm. like oh you had to wash your hands and use hand sanitizer every like five minutes and wipe everything yeah. down but once they cleared that hurdle i was like okay this isn't a big deal then i just have to wear my mask and not get near people gathering with family my mother is in our bubble mm-hmm. and she's the immediate family we have in town other than that i haven't seen any of my oh well we did meet my mother-in-law and her partner at a campsite outdoors Mm. in the summer so we did go camping Mm. together outdoors but that was it and i haven't i haven't been flying since i didn't fly for the whole year which is unbelievable but you're thinking about flying once you're all vaccinated so stay tuned listeners oh my gosh i can't wait to go somewhere (laughs) yeah i'll go on a plane they'll just have to like looney tunes style hit me on the head with an anvil and then just like wake me up when we get there (laughs) Uh, well, you know, it's funny because I was at the point where I hated flying just because it's so uncomfortable and crowded mm-hmm. and just gross and un- icky. Yes. But now I'm just like the thought of being able to go somewhere else. I, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I just want to say all the listeners that thank you for listening. And also Tina, I want to say I appreciate you so much, not just for doing this podcast twice now, but also for always being there for me, for being a source of comfort and just fun, mostly fun. And I hope everyone listening has enjoyed this season of programming. And more importantly, I hope that everyone has a friend like Tina or a family or someone to lean on because this has been one heck of a year. Like just, I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, but I don't remember ever living through something like this before. So 
I think, you know, all things considered nine months in, we're doing okay. So do you have any closing thoughts for me, for everyone, for anyone? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that we're super fortunate and my thoughts go out for all those who who are struggling because this has been a very difficult year and that right back at you, I, I appreciate your support. And I also want to say how impressed I am at how much work you've done this year and that <laughs> I really enjoyed your interviews. They're so in-depth and you have such interesting guests and they're on oh. such a varied uh, number of topics. I mean, I, you know, you really, it's what it's like out. to live in. It's what it's like to live inside my brain. It's like that old Atari game where there's just a ball bouncing back and forth between things. My the topics just come from my brain. I, yeah. But yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's good to know someone's listening, but it is nice when people reach out. And I did pose on an earlier show that I should call fans of the show level heads. <laughs> just it's right up my alley. You know, I love a good pun. And Someone actually emailed me, cold emailed me and said, I think you should call us level heads. <laughs> so I, ha- I have someone who's listening in that kind of depth. So, Oh, that's hilarious. It's a- it is hilarious. Yeah. Absolutely hilarious. So, well, thank you to all of my listeners. I'll be back sometime in the new year. I'm going to give myself some time off, time to s- store up some shows and book some more guests since I'm my own producer, but I'll be back soon. And uh, thank you for coming on, Tina. I appreciate it. All right. You take care.